This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Kenny Arnott, thanks very much for uh, making your debut on Chris Judd's Talk Your Book. I thought it might be a good place to start if you'd tell us a little bit about Arnott Capital and how you, go, and how you guys go about investing. Yeah, sure, Chris, and um, thanks for having me on the show. So our approach, uh, well, first of all, disclaimers, this is general advice only, and now um, past performance doesn't in any way guarantee future performance, although we'll do our best to do that. Look, our, our approach is to try and create asymmetry in our returns, and we do that by finding asymmetric returns, investing in the best stocks within those themes, uh, focusing on macro drivers for both risk and opportunity, to generate an asymmetric return prof portfolio. And what that's meant for us through thematic investing is that we've had uncorrelated returns um, and we've had asymmetric returns. That is, we've had good upside with limited downside. The, the way we go about finding ideas is first of all, we look for themes, then we find the stocks that we want to own within those themes, then we look for catalysts around those stocks and that's what makes up the portfolio. It's, it's just worth probably just touching a little bit of where we find those themes and, and what sort of opportunities they're, they're going to be. Uh, we, we like to say go where the money is not, but the money will go. And what that means in, in a simple term is you're not going to find us in very long dated mature themes. You're going to find us um, in interesting ideas, which are early stage. And, and one, of our, one of our most interesting hunting ground is looking for supply and demand imbalances um, that arise in, in various commodity markets. So you that, want to talk today about Lotus Resources. I thought before we talk about the, the stock-specific idea, the underlying thematic of uranium is such an important part. Why don't you walk us through maybe starting with the supply-demand imbalance that, that you're seeing in the uranium market at the minute? Yeah, great, great place to start and uh, obviously very, uh, very important if we're going to discuss Lotus to have some background on what we think about uranium. If, if I sum up our uranium thesis, this... This chart here really is what, it, what it's all about. And one of the things that we've observed is when you see commodity markets move from a surplus to a deficit, it's, it's very unlikely that the, the price behaviour that follows that's going to be orderly and it, and it provides some, some really interesting investment opportunities. So this is what first uh, caught our attention um, in the uranium market. This is long-dated supply and demand forecast, which is... Uh, you know, showing an inflection point exactly where we are now in time. And, and there's really a number of factors on the demand side and there's a number of factors on the supply side that are leading to that. Uh, the first is that China's demand growth is enormous. Nuclear is the only way to generate green baseload. That's, that's been an increasing issue in Europe. Uh, new Western reactor builds and, and life extensions are a critical issue because they haven't been haven't seen that increase really since the 70. And then topping all that is, is that we've had an enormous uncertainty um, in the US around some various policy announcements around section 232 petition and, and much more recently, the Russian suspension agreement, potential renewal. And so on the other side of that, what we've seen is that we've seen uh, long, really long-term restricted production due to low, low prices sitting around what were in the 20s 
Um, and, and that's led to a, a real supply demand deficit currently, which has only been met by, by drawing inventory. And, and even more recently seen the two largest global producers buying in the spot market to meet their forward contracts, which is, is just quite unbelievable to imagine that could happen. Uh, COVID production cuts um, coupled with all this have now seen uh, production cut by 50% and that's at 20 and it's probably continuing to into 21. So the, the catalyst that we see for a change in all this um, right now, pre predominantly around policy um, and buying by the utilities. I can come back and cover those a um, little bit further down the presentation. Yeah, talk me, talk me through a little, little bit more detail, some of the supply. You, you mentioned the two biggest producers in Kimiko and Kezatamaprom. How much supplies come up, out from those two operators and how long will it take before they can turn that tap back on, so to speak? Yeah, look, that's obviously a, a million dollar question. I mean, it, it just worked before we touch on that. It, it's, it's worth noting that we were already facing over the long term a real deficit um, given, given the, the long term structure of the market, particularly with uh, China's increasing demand. And, and now what we've seen is we've seen a, a massive amount of production. So 70 million pounds and some estimates maybe larger come out. And, and the interesting thing, if, if we focus specifically on uh, the Kazakhs um, and Kazataprom, which is the state-owned enterprise in, in Kazakhstan, it's, it's just worthwhile just touching briefly on history. You can see here, this is their production profile, which had been increasing rapidly as a while they were operating as a state-owned enterprise. Um, and, and they really didn't seem to have any mandate other than increasing production. They, they did a listing um, a couple of years ago, a partial listing on the London Stock Exchange. And there's been a marked change in behaviour since the company has done that um, with a much more rational approach to how much supply they're going to deliver into the market. Now, that's really important because Adaprom have largely been the major seller in the spot market. And... We've just now mentioned both them, Cameco, are now actually buyers um, in the spot market. So, you know, we, we, we're left with a deficit somewhere between 20, 25 million pounds now. I mean, if you put it in round terms, we, we need about 190 million pounds and we're probably only producing 100 to 140 um, over the next couple of years. So an enormous amount has gone out of the market. And talk to me about the, the buying cycles for those utilities. A lot of people speak about the seven to 10 year buying cycles, which utilities buy their, their order books for uranium. Where are we at with that cycle? And when do you see some of those contracts being renewed? You know, that, that's, a, that's, a really, that's a really good point. And it, it's probably just worth scrolling forward a couple of, couple of slides here. And, and just talking about uranium cycle, the whole buying cycle and the fuel cycle, versus other commodities. And it's just worth pointing out that it's a much more long dated cycle that can often take years from the point that we actually see the ore mined to the point that it actually gets to a reactor. And I think that what this means is when you have a market that's existed for a long period of time and, and you know, you go back here and you you have a look that these utilities since Fukushima in 2008 have been able to get whatever they wanted 
um, as far as supply goes very, very easily. Then I think we're in a situation where the buyers have somewhat of a, and this is what we always see in, in, in commodity inflection points. If you've got a whole group of buyers that are used to low prices, you've got a whole bunch of producers which have actually gone out of business um, on care and maintenance, and, and you've just got a market just sprung for, I think, some, some real some real elasticity in the, in the price move. And, you know, what, what does that actually mean when we talk about this fuel cycle? It's worth also just talking about that while this long-dated fuel cycle is going on, we've had a whole lot of change occurring in policy and opinion, and that's also at an inflection point. We're seeing changes in European Union making that uh, making uranium on a clean list of sources. We've seen changes in Australia. We've seen a lot of changes in various states in the US. And all this is leading to a whole lot of new reactor builds being built. And while that's happening, you've got the forward contracts um, of particularly the US utilities, their forward order book coverage is just decreasing going out. So I think when we, when we sit here and we talk about this long-dated cycle and, you know, some people say it's a seven-year cycle, I'm not, not sure it really matters what it is. The point is there's a very long-dated, there's a very long-dated cycle from getting the ore and, and to the actual utility and the utilities have been drawing down on their, on their inventory. We've got mines on care and maintenance and this concept of what's going on in the spot, Chris, I, I think is worth talking about. The spot market in uranium is not where most of the liquidity is done. Most of the liquidity is done in the, in the forward contracts, and we talk about a spot market going about a year out. We talk about midterm going about three years and then long-term beyond that. And although most of the utilities are buying uh, in, the, in the mid to long-term, certainly Chinese are buying only long-term primarily, and um, Europeans tend to be more in the mid and the US probably a little bit the ones that are shorter dated. The spot market actually is a pricing mechanism for those contracts. So that means that it's, it's, an, important, it, it's an important mechanism, even though there's not a lot of volume from a, from a price setting point of view. So to actually have our two largest producers uh, declaring no force majeure um, for their customers because of COVID and to be in the spot market buying uh, is quite an interesting situation because a lot of those contracts in the forwards are a cost plus spot sort of mechanism. So they're not necessarily concerned where they are as, as long as they get done. So I guess what all this means to me is that there's a lot of pressure building um, on the spot price, which will act as a price mechanism for the, for the longer term. And talk to me about LOT and their KL. Kalakira deposit. The uh, the project was bought uh, from Paladin. They've got a sixty percent, sixty five percent ownership. Um, it, it's I mean it's you know it's it's located in a country where I think pretty peaceful. Um, it is a, it's just worth worth covering off on the on the sovereign risk of the country. It's um, you know it's had that's a stable... Malawi for the for the people listening on podcast. That's Malawi. I'm sorry, that's, that is Malawi, correct. And have you had any um, experience investing in Malawi before? I've had, look, I've had some indirect experience. I think ultimately you've got to take a sober view about any foreign countries, um, particularly with, with a, in Africa. But, you know, we, we've got a situation where, you know, they've had independence since 64. 
um, one party rule in it in 93. We've just had recent elections and there's a new coalition. So you know, I think it's fair to say it's, it's uh, stable. You know, it's a stable and generally peaceful place. They've, they've got a, uh, they've got a tenement, um, which is a large tenement. Um, and there is some exploration potential. It's not something that we um, generally factor in at. I mean, I think when we think about Lotus in the concept of uranium opportunity, Really what I think about is that you've got good management with a good project that can get into production and take advantage of the uranium prices that are going up. They've got a high-grade resource, 37 million pounds, and um, pretty simple operating structure, uh, you know, a history of, of producing a reasonable amount of, reasonable amount of pounds um, prior to going on care and maintenance due to the low prices in 14. There's been a lot of money spent, 200 million capex um, on the infrastructure and you know they're, they're probably capable certainly of producing around three million pounds on a restart it feels like there's almost gonna be a race once once or if uranium prices do really start to spike and hit that north of 45 dollars or if, if if they hit 60 dollars and com- companies can lock lock in prices somewhere in that range there's going to be some restarts potentially happening and it's going to be a bit of a race to who can get there first talk me through how much this will cost to get restarted and um, what sort of time frame that could occur in? Yeah, look there, uh, I think it's probably, it's a little bit premature to talk, to talk about how, how much that's going to be from a, from a larger point of view. You know, I think that they'll probably be done in stages and, you know, the CapEx, they're certainly, they're in the process of doing a restart um, costing now. So I think we'll wait and see how that is, but we've got to really, you know, one, one of the things worth mentioning is that I brought on some new management team here and we might just spend a bit of time on them. Edward um, and John have both come across from Uranium One in Canada. And I think the thing about these projects and the thing about, you know, operating in, in this space is that you, you really want to have some, you really want to be working with some good management. And I think we've, in both these guys, we've got um, good technical expertise and some, some really good industry experience. So, you know, although at this stage the, the restart costings are not yet complete, I think it's going to provide a, you know, a really, a really good leveraged opportunity. And you mentioned the new managing director, Edward Smirnov. He obviously had great success with Uranium One, which was a, a multi-asset company. Do you think this will be the sole asset that Lotus hold or could you see them expanding and becoming a multi-asset company as well? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I uh, had a call with um, Edward a little while ago, and I think it's a bit premature for them to be making decisions on that. You know, right now, the most important thing to do for all uranium producers is to remain very disciplined on, on restarts because, you know, if we, do, if we were to see um, any indication of, of restarts in an economic situation, i.e. where the price is now in the late 30s, then that's certainly not going to it's not going to help their cause so i think one of the best things right now is that we're seeing guys like lotus actually follow the leadership of the large producers in gazataprom and cameco uh, in in holding um in holding production and i think as as long as a lot of the uh, juniors remain in uh, i guess instead with that then uh, the supply and demand imbalance is is just destined to destined to remain and get worse I reckon one of the the issues with ASX uranium producers or developers is not really a 
a number one institutional grade type company. You, know, you talk about Paladin is, is probably the biggest. Uh, but then you've got Boss, you've got Penn, you've got LOT. Would it make sense, and we're completely speaking hypothetically, for a couple of these companies to get together so there is a clear ASX leader around size and quality of products, do you think? It's probably just not a problem for the ASX. It's, that's actually probably an issue for the uranium industry at large um, in that, you know, we could, we could strip out, there's a couple of listed proxies, um, yellow cake and uranium participation corp, you can own which, uh, which hold physical uranium. And, and then beyond that, uh, you, could, you could take Cameco um, and Gazataprom and, and Gazataprom is a free float of, of 25% at the moment. So, um, you know, liquidity of that is, is, is not terrific. So if you actually strip out those four companies, uh, then there's very little left to buy in uranium, which actually, to your point, makes it fascinating. You know, at, at the point that a, a large global allocator decides to put uh, even just a small portion um, of their assets into the uranium sector, and there's, there's very, very little to buy. So I think that it's inevitable that um, we probably will see uh, some sort of consolidation or, or, or roll-up opportunities like we often do in commodities. But again, that, that's probably a little, bit, a little bit ahead of ourselves here, I think, Chris. And so just finishing up, we, we've spoken about the potential for, for price improvements in the Iranian space. What are the other potential catalysts that could see LOT re-rate? Well, look, I think it's worth spending some time on the Russian suspension agreement, which is getting very little airtime. Um, the Russian suspension agreement was, was effectively designed to, affect, uh, to prevent the Russians from flooding the US market um, with uranium. And, and in, in one form or another, it, it's been in place since 94, basically um, puts a cap that US utilities can buy from Russian-based sources of 20%. Now, it's due to expire this October, and there has been an expectation from the utilities that that, that would be removed, that cap would be removed. And to give you an indi indication as to how US utilities felt about this, there's one utility which is 29% Russian-sourced, sorry for the typo there, through 2030, um, and that's actually greater than 30% in the early years. Now, the recommendation, this has become quite a political debate, particularly leading into the, into the election, and, and the recommendation to the Department of Commerce has been that it be extended, and, and it appears that it will be extended at 20%. And, and when that's done, you're going to have a whole lot of US utilities which currently have a forward order book well above 20%. And, you know, whether they'll be re it'll be retrospective or they'll be grandfathers, a whole lot of unknowns. But certainly this, I think, is stalling US utilities from buying. They typically buy in the fourth quarter in any case. And so you've got I think a dual catalyst of when their seasonal buying increases combined with a, um, some sort of resolution on the Russian suspension agreement, which probably going to see things get really, really interesting in the fourth quarter. And, and the other interesting thing that's going to happen in the fourth quarter is that Gazataprom um, was able to maintain their production through the first half. It's the second half, because the reason they were able to maintain their production is they kept the milling operation going. They didn't keep the uh, drilling operations going. And so there's going to be a lag effect. And so we're going to see the real effect of the Gazataprom production cuts 
come into play in the fourth quarter right at a time where we're going to see US utilities interested in buying. So I think that's going to be a pretty pretty critical time to keep an eye on the uh, keep an eye on the the forward orders. Well, Kenny, thanks for coming on. I'm a, I'm an LOT shareholder as well, so I hope uh, I hope your thesis proves correct, and it's going to be a very interesting one to uh, to watch. No worries. Thanks for having me on the show, Chris. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.